Hello and welcome to the Own Your Role podcast. I'm your host, Dean Watt, and I'm your guide to exceptional leadership and dynamic culture in your business. Join me each week as we explore practical tips through fun and fascinating interviews with successful business owners who've mastered the art of leadership. Over the last 20 years as a keynote speaker, author, and high-performing team transformation specialist, I've been fascinated by what it takes to create a great culture and dedicated team members in a business. When leaders truly own their roles and empower their team members to do the same, a great culture is always the result. So whether you're on your couch or in your car, on a treadmill or hiking up a hill, get ready to be inspired and entertained as you learn exactly how to own your role. Welcome once again, everybody, to the Own Your Role podcast. I'm Dino Watt, and I'm excited to have you here to be part of this episode where we get to talk about how to bring in the best practices in your business and your life. And as you know, we're always trying to help you sh- help share with you the best practices possible to help you get more, more in your life and your personal life uh, with your spouse, or your partner, or with your kids, with humanity, and also inside of your business. And as we've transitioned the Own Your Role podcast over to what it is today. We've been just stacked with amazing guests who have great insights, and I hope you've really been enjoying that. I know that you have with the feedback that we've been getting, and I want to continue to encourage you to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues, as well as um, make sure you subscribe and like it so you know when the next episodes come out. We're basically sending one out every single week, and we appreciate those of you that have reached out to tell us how much you've appreciated it. And I think you're really going to enjoy not only the story, but the focus of today's podcast, because our guest, Daryl Stickle, he's somebody who not only has a really interesting story, he's from Canada, so we're going to hear some hockey stories, but also like what he does and how he's able to help build unlimited trust with people in all different types of situations. And as you know, as a business owner, one of the biggest things you have to do to lead people the way you want to lead them is to build that, that sense of trust to not only let them trust you, but to let them know that you trust them to do the job that you want them to do. So with that being said, I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Please welcome Daryl to our uh, episode. Thanks, Daryl, for being here. Daryl Stickle. Thank you so much for having me, Dino. It's a it's a real pleasure to be with you and with your listeners. Well, I'm so glad that we were put together. And I, I know that the people that start, that continue to suggest people to me to my to be guests on my show are really getting a good sense of the types of people I like to talk to and interview. And this show really has evolved into this idea of let's just get really interesting people who are doing interesting things in the world and put out some really great ideas so people can get more in their life. So I appreciate you being here. We start off every show and every episode with really digging into your story of what got you here, why are you doing what you're doing? And then if I you know, need to, I'll jump in and ask some questions on the way, but please tell us uh, about you and your story and how you got here. Sure, so I was born and raised in a small town in Northern Canada, uh, Fort St. John. And it was about 12,000 people and it was about an hour from the next small community. Wow. Um, temperatures could routinely get to minus 40. Um, and there was, there's throughout history, there's no month in which it hasn't snowed in Fort St. John. So there's a, so there's a, a time in history where it's snowed in July, where it's snowed in August, where it's, you know, so, so conditions can be challenging. 
Why and making me appreciate I live in Utah and we have a season of snow and I <laughs> me, I'm originally from California. So that's hard enough. So every yeah. month. it doesn't snow every month, but there is always a month in which it has snowed. So, <laughs> so at some point I was actually home one summer in July when it snowed and I, I sent a postcard to a friend of mine with two moose and a blizzard. And I said, that's me tanning on the left. Oh my gosh. Um, so in an environment like that, you have to pull together, right? Like you, you have to have a sense of community. Yeah. And so I learned that if you could help people, you should. And that's the way that I grew up. Mm -hmm. And and then when I was 17, um, I was playing junior hockey, you know, re reasonably high level of hockey. And I got attacked by a fan with a club. Um, oh. I was close to the boards there was a gap in the glass and uh this person grabbed me pulled me halfway over the boards he had a, a big wooden club in his hand and he beat me shattered my helmet knocked me unconscious um and then i i got pulled out of that by one of my teammates and then a, another player grabbed me and just beat the tar out of me um, wow why you're already down yeah um, wow. and it was a, it was a riot. Uh, there was a bench clearing brawl. My team actually, as they were carrying me off the ice, two of my teammates were, had me and were sort of helping me get to the dressing room, carrying me to the dressing room and people were throwing beer bottles. Jeez. Um, so my team went into the stands. I mean, this wasn't for the Stanley cup or anything, right? This is no. a local, local. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was in Fort Nelson. Um, wow. and according to one of my teammates, I stopped breathing three times on the way to the hospital. In wow. the um, now I'm, I'm legally blind now. And I knew I have a hereditary retinal disorder. Hmm. Um, I knew I was going to lose my sight eventually. And so I had spent a good chunk of my life knowing that I had to train my brain to be able to think for a living, that that was going to be my path forward hmm. in life. And all of a sudden, I couldn't. I had the attention span of a fruit fly. I, I went from, you know, being on the honor roll to barely passing, or to failing most of my courses. Wow. And you know, I had planned to go to university. Instead, I had to go to a community college. And I continued to suffer concussion after concussion because we just didn't know. It was in the mid '80s, right? And wow. so, um. And eventually I moved to Victoria, uh, British Columbia on Vancouver Island. And, um, I'd be on the bus and someone would just come up and sit down next to me and say, I'm really having a hard time. Mm. And so for some reason, complete strangers would just open up to me. And I knew that that wasn't happening to other people. Uh, and so I wanted to understand what it was that was from prompting that and i also you know i thought if this is going to keep happening maybe i should get paid for this um mm -hmm. yeah and so good insight yeah so i i started studying psychology and i started working with families in crisis and troubled teens and um working on crisis lines and working with street kids and um really trying to hone these skills and understand them at a deeper level mm -hmm. and partway through that journey i realized that that a lot of the folks I was working with were just stuck. 
and it had taken them years to become stuck where they were and it was going to take years for them to recover if they ever did and hmm. i thought this is going to drive me insane and and so i shifted into public administration hmm. and was working in native land claims in british columbia and they would ask me these deep philosophical questions like what is self-government or what will the province look like 50 years after claims are settled the last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for over 100 years they should trust us? And I thought, man, that's a good question. Yeah. And it gets to the heart of these long-term disputes, right? Why are they so resilient? Um, as we speak, open warfare has opened up between Israel and Hamas. Hamas. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, that's such a, a apropos for right now. And And it doesn't feel like that benefits anyone. Mm -mm. Um, and so I went to Duke and, and wrote my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments. Mm. And, you know, there's this say, this statement from Kierkegaard who said that life makes sense in retrospect. So it makes sense when we look backwards. Sure. Well, when I got to Duke, one of the leading academic experts on trust had arrived the same year I did and another one arrived the year after I did and they were both on my committee and so I had two of the world's leading academics on the topic shepherding my work mm. now when I when I finished they sat me down we're having a drink the three of us and they said you know when you first came to us we had a conversation with each other and we said it's too big it's too complicated he never solves it I said we'll let him take six months and then he'll come crawling back and we'll let him chisel off a little piece of this and that'll be his thesis. I said, six months in, you were so far beyond us, we couldn't help anymore. Wow. And here we are two years later, we think you've solved it. Wow. And so I ended up going to work for McKinsey and Company, big management consulting firm. Mm -hmm. And they said, man, you've got good client hands. Let's send you to the worst places possible. Oh, great. Yeah, so places where there have been strikes, where the hostile takeovers, mm. you know, uh, employee reductions were going to happen, like places where people didn't want us to be. Sure. And I was getting an opportunity to practice this thesis that I put together. Then in 2001, I was involved in an automobile accident on the way to a client site. Another concussion, except oh, this wow. one seemed to just stick with me. And, and so I had something called post-concussion syndrome, which meant that I was tired a lot. I couldn't work 80 hours a week like I'd been doing at McKinsey. Mm. And so I had to transition. And I started a little company called Trust Unlimited. Started working with companies and individuals and organizations in all kinds of industries and, and all around the world. Helped them understand what trust was, how it works, and most importantly, how to build it. Because a lot of people are talking about how important trust is, mm. but they're not talking about what to actually do about it. Right. And so for the last 20 years, I've been devoting my life to better understanding trust and the learning curve is so steep, you know? Wow. And so, you know, I guess it was this year that I got nominated as one of the world thought leaders on the topic of trust. I've spoken at all kinds of academic institutions, but I really focus on a practical applied approach. Well, so let's talk about that with the practicalness of, of of trust, because I think 
if I'm listening to this show now and I'm thinking, okay, well, I, how do I, what's the fastest, easiest way for me to build trust? But I think beyond that, we also need to look at what are some things that people are doing to destroy trust in especially smaller environments with one another. Right. And we live in such a, a world today that there are so many, what it feels like so many potential or actual landmines mm-hmm. around, around communication and around uh, belief systems. Whereas I think as easy as, as quickly as say 10 years ago, you and I could sit here and have a completely speaking of like the Hamas and Israel thing. We have a conversation around it. We could even disagree on things, but it didn't end up being personal warfare because of the actual warfare that's going on, which I think is happening all day long right now. So let's talk, let's get into the practicalness of building trust and how also the practicalness of destroying trust. Yeah. Well, and I think, this this should be really resonant for your audience, you know, because you talk about owning your role. Yeah. There's so many things that happen to us in the world that are outside of our control. Mm-hmm. But how we show up is inside our control. Mm. And so our our focus on building relationships, our ability to build relationships is one of the things that shelters us from all this chaos. And so for me, trust is the willingness to be vulnerable when you can't completely predict how someone's going to behave. Mm. And so that means that there's elements of uncertainty and vulnerability involved when we decide to trust people. And it's uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. And we each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. If we go beyond that threshold, we don't trust. If we're beneath it, then we do. And so that means that if uncertainty is high, we can only tolerate a small range of vulnerability and still trust someone. As uncertainty starts to drop, the range of vulnerability we can tolerate starts to grow. So in our deeper relationships, we've got really small amounts of uncertainty. We really know that person. We're comfortable with them, which means we can tolerate a huge range of vulnerability. So So building. So the more certain we are, have the more certainty we can build around for example, if there's a leader listening to this right now and the certainty they can build around, I'm talking to a team member, you're not going to get fired. Right. And I really do want that feedback and that I have a history of showing that I can accept hearing feedback and not blow up, not get upset, not have retribution, then the higher the vulnerability is going to be. But if you have the history of the opposite of that. Right. And your team member is uncertain about how you're going to react. And is this a trick or whatever? Their vulnerability is obviously going to be super low, which which makes sense logically. But we're looking at the risk level that that person is willing to tolerate. Right. Having that conversation. So you're bang on. What we need to understand is where does uncertainty come from? How do I take steps to reduce it? Mm -hmm. Where does our vulnerability come from? How do I take steps to help people manage that? And, you know, if we think about what's going on right now in the world, our vulnerability isn't really going down, right? It's it's mm-hmm. at a fairly set level. If I work for you, then that's where I get paid. It's where part of my sense of self comes from. It's it's where my friends are. It's where my aspirations and goals stem from. And so I have a certain set level of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. If uncertainty starts to bounce, right? So say, for example, let's just take a 
hypothetical, let's say there was a pandemic and every different region responded in a different way. Mm. Or let's say there were technological changes that caused the rules to change, or there are changes in norms and values, right? Those things all cause uncertainty, just bounce like crazy. And that means that the risk is bouncing. Mm. And it means we're really uncomfortable taking on more vulnerability, which is what trust means, right? It's that willingness to take on more vulnerability. And you talked about us being able to have a conversation before the vulnerability was, well, Dino and I might disagree on this topic. Now, all of a sudden, the vulnerability is, what if I get vilified in social media? What if I get canceled? What if- Uncertainty has risen high. And so is the vulnerability. Ah. And so so we, we start to get really uncomfortable. I can't be more uncertain. And we see actors in the world heightening our sense of vulnerability. Mm. If you don't do what I say, then the whole world's going to end. Right. If you're not aligned with me, then you're aligned with the bad guys and the whole world's going to erupt in nuclear holocaust. Mm. And so we see them ratcheting up our sense of vulnerability. Let's say, for for instance, some political figure was to come out and say, all immigrants are rapists, disease-carrying, blood-poisoning mm-hmm. villains. Well, that would feel pretty threatening. Mm-hmm. And I would have a real struggle with any uncertainty when it came to any situation around immigration. Mm-hmm. And so we see actors having an impact on our perceptions of uncertainty or vulnerability. Uncertainty comes from two places. It comes from us as individuals, and it comes from the context we're embedded in. And I, I think of the context as the rules of the game, mm-hmm. right? There are formal and informal mechanisms of social control that constrain our behavior. And so I go to a doctor's office. The doctor says, take off your clothes. I do. I don't tend to do that in other places, Dino. Right. Right. And, and if we understand it, <laughs> and you understand the certainty of what's happening, you're willing to be vulnerable because the risk of not finding out that you have some disease or illness or whatever is too high. Right. And even if I met the same person and I know they're a doctor. Mm-hmm. And we happen to be in a restroom at a gas station and they say, right. take off your clothes. Right. I'm like, maybe we could meet in so, your office. So your context and of where we are is also adding to the certainty of that conversation. Right. And so when I used to work with kids in care, you know, at group homes and receiving homes and those kinds of things, I took every effort I could to make myself as predictable as possible. Hmm. And to clearly understand the rules and communicate the rules to them as clearly as I could. And they had to understand that the rules were going to be enforced. That's interesting because I now look at that in the, in the mindset of a leader with a team member, right? And how often I think challenges arise because the rules weren't clearly stated, mm-hmm. the expectations weren't laid out in a very uh, specific manner. And so there's that uncertainty. I I use this phrase often about the confused mind says no. And the idea that if I'm a team member and I don't have certainty on exactly what the rules are, even if they're, even if you set them in a vague way, they're vague. Right. Right. So my, my risk level. Well, how often do we see organizations with something posted on the wall about their values and then Mm -hmm. It feels like hypocrisy, 
right? Totally. Because we don't really do that, you know. Right. Um, and so, or the, or or I will even say, or the obvious, right? When I I do this whole thing around values, and when people, when you have to post that honesty is a value, I'm actually concerned. Right. Right. Because like, what's the other option? Why are we posting this? That should be a known factor. Like hopefully your core value is, is adding more to the honesty conversation or we're willing to be radically transparent or whatever it is instead of, or honesty or integrity. I I have a test. Like I literally teach this test where I say, if you can say, well, I would hope so after hearing a core value, it's not a good core value. (laughs) It's like, look at that. Um, Yeah. And that, so I, I think there are 10 levers we can pull to build trust. Okay. 10? 10 levers. Let me, before you get to that, I want to ask you, this popped up. Are there areas, is, is there a space or a situation where it's good to really control not having that vulnerability, not having that certain, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, is there is there places where you want to hold that? Besides the obvious where, you you know, you're walking into, you know, a prison, I guess, or, or, you know, like, is there an obvious place where you want to be able to have that control of the uncertainty or vulnerability? I think early on, if, if I'm working in a, in a healthcare setting, Mm -hmm. I want to control the level of vulnerability for my patients. Mm. Um, If I'm thinking about my kids, I'm never more vulnerable than when it comes to them. Mm. And so I want to have a clear sense of what the consequences might be um, because I'll feel those more acutely than I do for myself. Um, I guess in our world today, I, I find one of the things I find frustrating is the idea that, and, and I think we're probably around the, the same generation. I grew up thinking and believing that trust was a given until you prove me wrong. Right. Like I'm going to trust people. I, I have, I have a sense of belief that most people want to be good and kind and nice. And until I'm proving wrong, whereas I think in today's world, it's almost the opposite. It's like, we don't trust you at all until you prove you can be trusted. Right. I think you're right. Um, there there's been, I mean, trust levels are the lowest we've ever seen. Yeah. You know, the lowest we've ever recorded and it's a threat to democracy. It's a threat to our way of life. Um, you know, trust in institutions and systems like trust acts as a social lubricant. And it's been Mm -hmm. clearly shown that communities and countries with higher trust levels do better in terms of mental health and, and efficiency and economically and, you know, standard of living. We, we see these things play out. And it's in decline. And um, I think that's fascinating because with the decline of the trust levels, it feels like there's more, there's more of a trust ask that we're, 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 we're being given right from let's just say government or whatever. We're being asked to trust them more strictly because like, there's no, no, no give back to why I should trust you more. And it's making me trust you less. The more you right. have to tell me, no, 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 I really, you really should trust me. Why should I really trust you? It's like right. this, this well, really interesting <clears throat> opposite. I, I actually feel like maybe the trust ask is the same, but it feels bigger. 
Yeah. Right. Cause, cause we're less confident in them. And, you know, you had asked it at the start of the show about, you know, what can leaders do? I, I think we have to go first mm. because building trust is, it creates a norm of reciprocity. If I make myself a little bit vulnerable to you, then you're willing to respond in a similar fashion. And this is why I tell leaders they need to lead with their imperfections. Lead with imperfections. Yeah. We need to show people that we're not perfect and that it's okay to not be perfect. And a lot of times I'll talk to leaders. I'll say, you know, what made you a good leader five years ago? Is that the same thing that makes you a good leader now? No. Mm -hmm. And what, you know, the things that will make you a great leader three to five years from now, are they the same things you're doing right now in this moment? No. And so you're going to have to try new things. You're going to have to learn and grow and develop. You will make mistakes. Mm. You will stumble. You may fall. Yeah. And you need to create an environment because the world is moving so quickly. You need to create an environment where people are comfortable with the idea of learning, growing, making mistakes, failing. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, so we, we start to think about what does that look like? And, you know, Let's- I... Yeah, let's get into that. That like, what does that look like? Because we, we got ten levers to go through. I'm very curious to think about, like, I'm gonna. I don't even know what the levers are, and I'm gonna assume they're not brain surgery. They're not super hard to do. No, it's not rocket science. But it's that idea of people tend to overcomplicate the simplicity of something, right? Like, I I deal a lot with relationships. And I think people way overcomplicate relationships to to the point of where they destroy them because they're overcomplicating. And when you just go back to the basics and be simple about it. Right. right? So, so well, I'm excited to hear this. When, I when, to be like, duh. <laughs> well, when people see my model, they go, of course, that's how it works. Right. Right. This is obvious. Like, how did this guy get a PhD? I'll give you an example of that. Like I was just on a call. I think it was yesterday where. I used to teach marriage courses and in the marriage course, every once in a while, one of the things we would do is we would have a conference and we'd have people come, you know, two day event or whatever. And part of the process was, all right, I want you each to write down 10 things that would just make you happy if your spouse did X, right? Just this based upon whether it be your love languages or just things that you really appreciate, write down 10 things. Okay. They both do that. Then they, then they talk to each other about those 10 things. You're not allowed to, to argue with the other person about the thing, 10 things that would make them happy, right? And then when you're done, you swap over the list to each other, right? You just, okay, here's my list. And I had a guy in one of my classes go, wait, wait let me, just a moment, let me get this straight. I paid $3,000 to come to this event so you could help my wife write a list of things that would make her happy, have me write a list of things that make her happy and swap those and give those to me so now I know it will make her happy. And I said, yes. And he goes, worth every penny. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the simple thing. Like it's not, brain science it's not rocket science it's it's just like yeah so yeah. so i'm sure that's what this is going to be too it's uh very similar to that because yeah. we all have the ability to build trust yeah just some are better than others yeah. right and those who aren't very good have a lever that they pull mm-hmm. usually it's the ability lever right like oh i've oh. got these kinds of credentials this sort of background this much experience yes you know or I i'm have- good at the thing I'm good at the thing. And I'm good at this thing. So why ask me to do all these other things? Everyone says I'm good at the thing. So yes. you should just listen to me. Yes. 
And so that's one of the levers. Those who are better have multiple levers. Mm. Those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. Yeah. Makes sense. That may totally make sense. And so uncertainty comes from two places. It comes from us as individuals and it comes from the context. Well, there's four levers within uncertainty. Three of them relate to us as individuals and they are benevolence, which is the belief you've got my best interest at heart. Mm -hmm. Integrity. Do I follow through on my promises and do my actions line up with the values that I express? And ability. Do I have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? And then context. Competence is what you say. Yes. Competence. Yes. A lot of people will say, I got the confidence to do it, but you don't have the competence. Right. Right. And so those are, those are the four levers within uncertainty. Wow. And if we think about those, a lot of times I'll ask people who here's a great leader and all the hands go up and I say, Oh, that's awesome. What does that mean? And then they just stare at me. Right. And they said, well, it just seemed like something I should think I'm good at. And so before we started this podcast, I asked you, what's a great guest look like? And you told me, and now I'm trying to hit that mark, Mm -hmm. but I included you in the conversation. Right. And we talked about your listeners, what they found compelling. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to hit that mark. I'm trying to hit what good looks like. But I included you and some thought about your listeners in that definition. I didn't just come up with it myself. Mm-hmm. Similarly, when I talk about benevolence, you know, I'll be working with a family, a group of families, and they'll say, who here has their kids' best interest at heart? And all the hands go up. And I'll say, how many of your kids would say that? And it's usually about a third, you know, mm-hmm. and it's somewhat hesitant. And so if it's not obvious in a place where it's supposed to be obvious, how do we make it land? Because let's be clear, me thinking I have benevolence doesn't really carry a lot of freight. You have to think I have benevolence. So let's let's define benevolence for the audience because uh, I use a phrase often when I'm talking to leaders, this benevolent alpha. Like it's right. important for you to have this benevolent alpha. And for me, it means to be able to make decisions and be uh, confident in your decisions while using the humility that I'm I'm open to other ideas. I want people to know that I'm not uh, a tree that's stuck in my ways, but that right. but I am going to make decisions so you can be confident in my leadership as well. So talk to me about your idea of benevolence. So I actually I was I was on a podcast with a guy named Mark Devine who's an ex-Navy SEAL, Mm -hmm. he had a great definition for it. He said, when you're in the SEALs, your primary responsibility is to the guy next to you Mm. and to their success. And he said, so if you're in a team of eight, there are seven other people who are focused on you being successful. Mm. That's what benevolence starts to look like. It means having the best interest, not just of myself, but of the group and of the people within the group at heart. Wow. So that means as a leader, sometimes that benevolence for me, anyway, this is what I get out of that is having the best interest at heart for the people around you sometimes looks like having to correct them. Yes. Sometimes looks like having to dismiss them. Yes. Sometimes looks like, I mean, you have to have that ability because you really do. Benevolence is caring. Benevolence is, is that I really do have your back, even if it doesn't feel like it right now. 
and how do we make it land right so i've i've coached folks who who've said you know i've got this employee they're really not doing well they seem to be really struggling they're really unhappy and i say this is not the right place for them hmm. how do you find a place for them to be successful and engaged and happy it may be somewhere else within the organization or maybe in a different setting mm-hmm. and it's in the best interest of the team and that individual for them to transition to someplace else. And it's, you know, benevolence is not always being nice. You know, I am benevolent towards my kids and that means sometimes I hold them accountable. Sometimes I give them strong feedback, um, but they believe that I have their best interest at heart. So it lands not as criticism or an attack, but rather he's got my back. And you know what? It's uh, you built that, right? You built that belief in them. It wasn't an assumption just because I said so, right? Right. Which is a hard thing as a parent. I know I caught myself doing that a lot of times because I said so. That's why, right? But building that idea as a business owner, as a leader, you have to focus on building that ability for them to believe that you are looking out for themselves and or for them as well. Right. That the the word that came to mind when you said that, and I use it a lot, but it just kind of struck me a little differently when you're talking about benevolence is love. Right. Like, do you truly love that person as a human being enough to recognize that this might not be the best fit for them and, and that you love them enough to say, Hey, I got to go. I, I do this. This it's a little bit that I do in, in some of my speeches and it's funny, but it's also real as I talk about how, you know, you know, you'll know when it's time to let somebody go when you walk in the door in the morning and they walk in at the same time and you give your pleasantries of, you know, Hey, good morning. And they say, good morning back. And the next thing you think is, man, I wish you would just quit. So I don't have to do, be the person to let you go. Right. right. It's like, wow, you're out of you're out of integrity right there. You're the one who has a problem, not them. And you don't love them enough. You're not benevolent enough. I really like that that we think about benevolence in that way of caring about the other person and having their back. Right. Yeah. And being able to take the risk of giving them honest feedback. Yeah, it is a risk, right? Boy, talk about risk, right? Here's another way to to build risk <clears throat> into that. And you know, my when my sons played hockey. Mm-hmm. I'd go to their games and after the game, I'd say that was great. And then I'd give them a couple of positive comments about things that they'd done well, specific things they'd done well. And then I'd say, do you want to just sit with that? Or would you like to hear some feedback? And by including them in that process, sure. and they'd always say, I want to get better. So what do you got? And I'd say, in this moment, you could have done this differently. And that's right. And I'd give them one piece, and that was it. Mm. And, you know, when my oldest was 12, he looked at me one day and he said, Dad, even when you're upset with me, I know it's about what's best for me. And so if, if we can include the other person in the conversation, because a lot of times when we're working with our kids, we're thinking about today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, 10 years down the road. Sure. We want them to engage in behaviors now that will help them 10 years from now. Yeah. I don't do that. I don't do that for myself. Yeah. You know, 
I mean, just you just got to look at me, Dino. I mean, this body doesn't just happen, right? There's years of neglect involved <laughs> there's here. Some, here's some hard work. There's some bad decisions that have been made, clearly. And so, you know, it's it's a a time frame thing that's a problem because mm. our kids are thinking about right now, right? And so we have to help them be successful in the moment to earn the right to talk about the future. And so it's the same thing if I'm a leader. I actually need to include the other person in that conversation. And this is something your listeners can try uh, in their relationships. They can have a conversation tomorrow, pick someone that's sort of middle ground and say, you know, I heard this guy, Daryl, he was talking about this term benevolence. It really means having somebody's best interest at heart or, or having their back. Mm. And I think I do that, but it doesn't always seem to land that way. Have you ever experienced that? And the other person's going to go, oh God, yes. And they're, you know, pull a little bit, try to get a conversation going, ask them for examples, then start to narrow the funnel and say, has somebody ever really had your back? Like, have you ever had that experience where you really felt someone was on your side? And they'll go, oh yeah. And, and pull on that thread too. You know, who was it? What did they do? What did it look like? How did it feel? And now we're getting hints and we're priming them. And then we narrow the funnel further. We say, what would it look like if I had your back? Hmm. What is success for you? How do I help you get there? Now we've created a moment of transparency mm. where when we have future conversations or I make a future decision, I can refer back to that and say, you remember when you told me you wanted to be in Cirque du Soleil? This is me trying to help you get there. Does it, and I would say it also includes a moment of that vulnerability we we're talking about, because if I, as a leader, I'm going to ask you, Hey, what can I do to help you get there? I'm I've got to be willing to be okay with whatever it is that they say. Like, well, I need you to right. to to loosen up on this. Or I need you to more support this, or be okay with the fact that I don't want to be in this office for the next thirty years. I want to go to work in Circus Soleil, right? So, right, yeah, yeah. You got to be able to say, okay, so you gotta totally support that and love it, and, and yeah, you, you got to say, I want to try to help you reach your goals. Yeah. Yeah. But then, but then you can follow along with, Hey, I want to get a promotion. Okay. So this is what it looks like to get a promotion. Right. And this is the expectations that I have and that everyone else is going to have for me to be able to justify that. I need to hold you to a higher standard. Mm -hmm. I need to push you harder. You need to work outside your comfort levels. Yeah. You're going to have to be spotlighted. So people yeah. are going to have to see you doing work that looks like that next level before I say, yeah, this person belongs at that next level. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we had, um, we had honesty, integrity, competence, and benevolence. So we've got benevolence, integrity, and ability. Oh, ability. Sorry. Which is competence. And then we had context. So those are four of the levers. Now there's two other levers within vulnerability. It's what's at stake and how do I value it? And so we can have a clear understanding of you, know, you and I may have a different perception of what's at risk when we're having a conversation, or I may not fully understand how, how vulnerable you feel or how you value certain things. Mm -hmm. So those are two more levers. Okay. After we've had our engagement, our interaction, we have a perceived outcome. And we interpret the world through stories. We may have a dramatically different perception of what just happened. And so we evaluate whether the outcome was good or bad. And then we evaluate who was responsible, who gets the credit, who gets the blame. 
And so those are a couple of other levers. So if you and I have decided we're going to do a project together, then we should talk about what a good outcome looks like beforehand instead of waiting until it's finished and then say, well, how did that look to you? Yeah. I think Brene Brown has that whole thing of like paint a picture for me, right? Right. Use that quite a bit. It's like paint a picture of what this looks like when it's done. So I'm getting the right thing to you. Right. And so we can start to create a shared story instead of having dramatically different stories. In the middle of all this is our emotional states, whether we like or dislike someone else. 99% of the trust research treats people like rational actors. I don't, I don't know if you've met people before. Do you that's, know? that's quite a good point. People are weird. It's my, that's my, it's my mantra. People are weird. Yeah. And so, and the, the more extreme those emotional states become, the less rational we are. Mm. And so all of that other stuff, all of the trust literature and everything is virtually useless in the cases where people love or hate each other. Yes. And so we have to reset those emotional states first. And there's levers there. So I'm going to, I don't want to throw you off, but I want to know, because it's such a, a good point of, of that. It's, there's got to be that there. How do you, how do you lead that trust and that emotional state in, in large groups of obviously varying personalities, uh, people who are out to get what they want and not really concerned about what everybody else wants Right. How do, you, how do you create that sense of trust on a large scale, especially when you know there's going to be, if there's any you know, people working together for any length of time, people in within the company who might not trust another person because of either misconception, misperception, miss, you know, or outright, you know, wronging of the other person. How do right. you, how do you create that? And you do that in hostile environments. So. Yeah. And, and when we see it, so, for example, let's say someone had vilified, you know, we do this vilification of the other. Mm-hmm. Let's say someone had effectively vilified another subgroup, right? And then you show up and you're part of that out, out group and everyone thinks, oh, my God, you're an evil jerk mm-hmm. because you're part of that subgroup. Let's let's say blind Canadians as an example. <laughs> you know, everyone's been told blind Canadians are the epitome of evil. And then I show up to work somewhere and, and everyone's like, oh my God, it's one of those blind Canadians. Right. Don't turn your There's back. That preconceived idea of blind Canadians are evil. Right. And so partly we have to start creating a shared narrative. Hmm. Partly we need to understand where the roots of those assumptions come from. And we need to start developing a bit of empathy for one another. Now, one of the things that I've done um, and I tell my, my sons don't write a thesis on building trust in hostile environments. Cause you always end up in hostile environments. <laughs> um, yeah. but, but part of what I do is create a shared vocabulary, right? So I show people the model. I walk them through the levers. I, I show them how to pull them, which allows them to have conversations with one another that become a little less emotional hmm. that allow them to, to talk to each other in a way that's a little more grounded. Another thing that I do is I'll get one person or group to tell me their story, much like your uh, exercise with spouses. I'll say, I want you to tell me your story. And then I go to the second group and I say, tell me your story. Tell me what happened. How'd we get here? Then I bring the groups together and I say, okay, group one, I want you to tell me group two's story. 
without having heard it. And so it forces a level of empathy upon them. Hmm. And it allows the other group to correct misperceptions as they go. And so it starts the creation of a shared story. And then I flip. Mm-hmm. And some of the things that I'll try to do is I have a similar exercise to yours with spouses, except that I start by saying, you know, we're going to talk about ability. What makes, what's a good spouse look like from your perspective? We're going to include each other in the conversation. Instead of us talking about the things that they're not doing, tell me the things that are amazing about them. Mm-hmm. Tell me the positive story. Let's start with that. And I see it start to generate positive affective states. Mm. It starts to create a closeness between them, which we can then allow to have the conversation to move towards. And what are some of the things I could do better? Because it doesn't feel quite as vulnerable. Mm. Um, You mentioned a shared narrative. Yeah. What we're creating here, right? Yeah. I'm going to assume as well, another part of that is also a shared outcome. Because we can all get on board with the same, this is what we want as an outcome, whether it be a happy marriage or a peaceful work environment or a creative work environment or whatever, that helps us understand what we're all here for. Right. Oh, I love that. And, and there's, there's, there may be moments where it doesn't, right? Where I desire a different outcome than you do. Mm-hmm. But are there elements of it that we can find that overlap? Right. And that's what we're looking for, right? Is that Venn diagram middle part of like, yeah, this thing, I get that thing, but we're all, we both get this when we both get our thing. Right. Mm. And so we're going to try to find a solution that benefits both of us somehow. And that's where the perceived outcome comes in on a lever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Um, I've seen remarkable outcomes in fairly short time. Um, you know, I was working with, so I, I get all my students and all of my participants to actually practice, you know, apply this to a relationship because I find that that's the best way for them to learn. Yeah. It's the hardest thing to get people to want to do. I think in any business is the, the role play, right? The, all right, here's the scenario. Here's what we want is the outcome. Now let's work it out together so that I do this too. I know we all are victims of this, of like the conversation that I'm having in my head never ends up being the conversation that comes out of my mouth. Right. But we all rely on that. It's like, no, no, no. When the situation arises, I'll just do this. It's like, okay, that's probably not going to be the way that it it, it, run, it it happens. Right. And so with my students and the people that participate in my workshops and those kinds of things, I'll say, you're actually going to go and find an existing relationship and you're going to try this. Mm. And here's a list of questions you're going to ask, and you're going to try to pull the benevolence lever today. And Mm. then tomorrow you're going to try to pull the integrity lever. And so routinely the response I get back was it felt awkward. Mm -hmm. It felt a bit uncomfortable. Sure. My God was the response positive. Yeah. Because when you start by saying, Hey, I, I'm supposed to practice these skills and it's to help build stronger relationships. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to help me out. The other person goes, well, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Lay it on me. Like I'd like to learn some too. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say the majority of people who you ask that to are, are going to be very open and welcome to it, even though it's awkward and weird for you. Uh, you know, I think, I think for the most part, 
we live in a, a world where people are really hungry for that vulnerability, authenticity around that, and that you open yourself up to the risk of rejection. Right. For the most part, especially if you went to somebody who you have some sort of relationship with is going to uh, reward you with a positive return on that. Yeah. What is that? Oh, oh sorry. Are we done with all the, the, how many more levers we got? We got, three we, got we went through. Went through. We're, okay. we're good. So what in the practical world that you deal with on a, on a basis, um, you know, I think a lot of people are, are reaching and searching for control and feeling like we're out of control in some ways, whether it be we're out of control with our, you know, government, our inflation, whatever it is. Right. And so I think there's a lot of people in, in my estimation that are that are clamoring for that sense of control. How does being more risky help you have more control? Well, I think building stronger relationships gives you more influence in the world. Okay. And it means that people will give you the benefit of the doubt. It means that that they'll be willing to go above and beyond to help you be successful. Mm. And I, I don't, I think it's a reduction in uncertainty. Control is one way to get that, right? Because the world feels so out of control and so mm. volatile. Mm. So for example, with my sons, I'm never more vulnerable than when it comes to them. Mm. So how much uncertainty can I tolerate? Very well, little. Uh, wait, you're never more uncertain? I can't, I can't tolerate a lot of uncertainty when it comes to my sons. Oh, because I'm so vulnerable. It's so vulnerable. Right, 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 right. And so there are ways that I can reduce my uncertainty about my kids, right? I could monitor them. Mm -hmm. I could get a phone app. I could try to control them. I could, mm -hmm. you know. A lot of people do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's successful until it isn't. And then it really, really isn't. Mm. Or I could say to them, I'm never more vulnerable than when it comes to you. I can't handle a lot of uncertainty. I need you to tell me what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they have conversations with me that I never would have had with my parents. Yeah. And they're not afraid to make mistakes and tell me about it because I've role modeled. Hey, I made a mistake. Didn't handle that the way I would have liked to. If I had a, another chance at it, I'd do this. Or yeah, do you remember that I time when I blew up on someone or, you know, those kinds of things. And they know that when they come to me, it's going to be calm. I've got a, relentlessly positive story about them i'm going to interpret it more favorably even than they do and and i'm going to be there to listen and coach and help them try to solve the problem but in the meantime my uncertainty's gone down which is very freeing right as a parent as i mean now that you're talking about your kids as a parent it's very freeing to be in that place of um the uncertainty dropping and the vulnerability yeah. increasing um it's it's yeah. a it's a unique I think in our world today it's a unique way to think about how we are going about our lives especially as parents or even as leaders uh, and I know that there's even people re watch, uh, listening to this or watching it right now who still don't fully buy into the idea of being more vulnerable with your team members is going to help you actually be a better leader. Because it's challenging, right? It's it's that putting yourself, it's it's a risk. <laughs> it is. It is. And, risk. and there's the concern that they have a story about you. Oh, I'm incompetent. Or 
you know, I was working with a, with a senior executive and he was talking about his wife sort of always bringing up this mistake he made. And I said, do you think maybe late at night in her deepest heart of hearts, she gives thanks to God that you made that mistake so she can bring it up every time you have a disagreement. <laughs> and he said, yeah. And I said, so how does that make you feel about making yourself vulnerable to that person? He goes, oh, I don't want to do it because right. I know the consequences. Yeah. But being perfect is a flawed strategy. Everyone else knows we're not. Yep. And we're, we're we haven't only made mistakes on the way here. We're going to make more going forward. Yep. And once we start to create that environment, we create a toxic environment because people are afraid to make mistakes. They won't come to you and admit that they've made one. You're the last one to know. They won't tell you when things aren't going well or when there's when they think you're having you have a bad idea because they know you're going to blow up on. Them. Yeah. You're not going to get feedback. They're not going to want to try new things. Head down, quiet quitting, all of that stuff is a result of these sort of toxic command and control styles of leadership. Yeah. And it's so funny because I'm sure there are people who are listening to this, who in some ways are, are like me, where when I hear stories of leaders like that, it almost seems unreal because it's not in your nature to be like that. And I know I've got listeners who are, who are hearing this going like, who does that? Who treats their people like that? Or who like, but we know through the evidence of things like quiet quitting and things like that, where it's out there and there's this rebelliousness about out there. Unfortunately, I also think that it's so out there through social media and uh, almost a generational conversation that's happening that there tends to be this blanket idea that that's how all leaders are. So therefore right. I'm not going to be that way. And that's just, it's, it's work that what you're doing that helps set that record straight, if you will. Right. Where it's like, hey guys, not everybody's like this, and and no one's trying to trick you. No one's trying to have you get your guard down so you'll be vulnerable, so they can harp on that. Yes, there are people like that in the world, absolutely, unfortunately. But if they're hiring you to come in and do this, if they hire me to come in and have a conversation around communication and connection and team building, right. they're probably not that type of person. Well, and let's remember that leaders are people too. And they're yeah. going through exactly the same fluctuations and uncertainty and vulnerability that we are. Mm. And they don't know how to handle it either. No one gets out alive, right? Everybody's dealing with yeah. this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And many times they have someone above them who's, yeah. you know. And they're trying to justify to them. them keeping their job and they're trying. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Man, we could talk about this forever. Uh, it's unlimited trust, right? Is the trust unlimited? Trust, trust unlimited. Sorry, trust unlimited is the, the what you've been working on and what you go into businesses is do and help them have these type of conversations and workshops and take those levers and really help them implement all of those. Um, what's your main focus? Like, what do you what What's your goal? What do you want to do? What's the mission that you're on right now? No less than making the world a better place. No less. No less. Love it. So trust is at its lowest levels ever. We can actually change it. And mm -hmm. we all have the ability to build trust. We can all get better at it. It's a skill that we can, that we can work on and improve. And there's an intentionality to it. And mm -hmm. so my aspiration is to reach as many leaders and individuals as possible, share the message as broadly as possible so that people actually start being more intentional. The, the old ways we used to use 
don't work as well anymore mm. because uncertainty is bouncing so much on us. And so we actually need to focus and invest time and energy on these relationships. You know, you make me have um, and think of hope in that sense of, I, I talk about this odd thing that I think is happening in the world today, which is this conversation around being vulnerable, being better leaders, not being the type of owner or leader who says, hey, I'm paying you to do a job. Just come in, do the job, sit down, shut up, and you get a paycheck, right? We've spent decades, literally decades, trying to train that out of people, out of leaders, helping them be more vulnerable, helping them be better leaders. And now, because of this great sense of distrust that I see happening in this generation, um, we now have this group of 20-something-year-olds who are saying, hey, I just want to come in, sit down, shut up, do my job. Don't ask me to do more. I right. Just give me the paycheck for doing the thing I'm doing. So it's literally the opposite of what we've been training on people to do. And so where I love what you're you're about and, and the concept that you're throwing out there is, no, 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 we need to help everybody understand that this is the better way to move forward, that we don't want a group of people. We don't want a group of leaders who say, just sit down, shut up, do your job. And we don't want employees or team members to say, I'm just going to sit down, shut up, do my job. We can all work together and get more out of the business, more out of our environment, more out of our conversations with each other, more out of our relationships, if we're willing to do that. Yeah. If we're willing to actually invest in it. Yeah. And that's the thing is, is we need people to have a shared vocabulary, raise awareness about what trust is, how it works, and then get people actually being intentional about how they show up, how they connect with others. Wow. I love it. Man, we can seriously, we, we may have to do a part two on this. This is great. I, I appreciate all that you've shared with us today, Daryl, because I know there are so many nuggets and pearls of wisdom that people are going to pull out of this and be able to take and use immediately, which is going to be fearful, fear, well, scary. And people yeah. are fearful to what the reaction will be. And, and that's why I love the part that you talked about. You have to practice this. You can't just expect it to happen one time. You can't just, you know, go to the gym one time and get abs the next day. It's a matter of actually having to work at it and and be more vulnerable, even when it doesn't exactly turn out the way that you're hoping. It's not an overnight success thing. It's not a get rich quick scheme, if you will. It's a matter of really putting this into practice. How can people reach out to you? How can they find you? So they can find my website is trustunlimited.com. Okay. Trust and they can email me, Daryl at trustunlimited.com. Okay. Um, my book, Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World, is available anywhere online. Love it. Um, and it's available as an ebook or an audio book. Um, and they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. Before we wrap this up, um, and I know we got it going, but I always have four questions that I ask every person on the show as we get ready to wrap things up and they're just like rapid fire off the top of your head simple okay. answers are you ready to play let's give it a go all right uh they're based on role so what is the highest and greatest responsibility that you have on this earth uh teaching people about trust helping them understand it and apply the concepts what do you want as the ultimate outcome for your life? I'd like to see a better world that my sons inherit. Hmm. That trust will start to rebound. 
you deal a lot with leadership. What do you consider true leadership to be? Uh, true leadership, servant leader is part of it, but it's also this notion of integrity and benevolence. Our mm-hmm. leaders should should follow through on their commitments, should be consistent with their values, but they should also have the best interest of those they lead. Mm-hmm. Lastly, we all have a day where we will have our last day on this planet and none of us know when that is. Uh, hopefully we have, and you know, hopefully you have a, a long and continued life, but between now and dead, what experience do you hope or want to have before that happens? What's the experience you want to have? Oh, that's a good question. Um, and it's not on the top of my head. Mm. Um, I want to have real impact. So I, I would love to have a conversation with senior leaders from all over the world mm. about how we make things better. Love it. That's, that's the experience I'd like to have. Nice. Love it. Well, I certainly hope that you get to have that. That's, that's my hope and prayer for you is that you get to have that experience between now and the last day that you're on this earth and the legacy that you're obviously focused on is will it outlast you which is what one of the reasons i love doing this show is because i speak to people who i know the legacy is not something that you will actually be able to accomplish on this earth that it will go far beyond you you have a book that book is part of your legacy your great great grandchildren will be able to read what did great great grandpa daryl think about trust and integrity and they'll be able to know you through those words and through podcasts like this, through the work that you're doing out in the world, the ripple effect that you're having is, is endless. And that's what I love about this type of conversation and what you're up to. So thank you for sharing that with us. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for letting me take the time of your listeners and and to hang with you for a bit, you know, I appreciate yeah, it. it was, a it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun. For all of you listening, you know, again, make sure you're subscribing, make sure you're sharing this with others. And what a what a powerful hour to share with someone in your life. You all know somebody right now who, when you were listening to this show, you thought to yourself, oh, not only could I use that, but I think I know somebody who could use that or help that understanding. So share it with somebody, let them know about going to Trust Unlimited and making sure that they can have that conversation with Daryl. Go check out his website, check him out on LinkedIn and see all the resources that he has for you and how he can possibly impact your life. And for now, I really appreciate you all being here, listening to our podcast. Always our goal is to help you really bring the best best practices into your office and your life and get more out of everything that you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll We'll see you on the next episode. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Own Your Role podcast. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you're alerted for every new episode we release. And don't forget to write us a review and let us know how we're doing. You can also follow me on Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, all the social medias. Just search at Dino Watt. And if you'd like me to come and help your team or audience learn to own their role in person, make sure you go to DinoWatt.com for more details. I'll see you on the next episode.